the thing they don't realize is that the dollar is just like the best house in an awful neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They're all getting debased, all of them. So the US dollar is getting debased less than the other currencies. So your measuring stick of these other currencies shouldn't be another currency that's depreciating. You have to measure all assets, whether they be the dollar, houses, you need to measure them against something that isn't moving. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Folks, we are glad to have you back for yet another intellectual adventure here on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. My goodness, do we have an absolute banger for you this week, as Josh and myself, Dan, are joined by the incredibly insightful Mr. Ryan Deedy. Ryan is a chartered financial analyst who spent the last 14 years working as an equity analyst in the investment management industry. He most recently worked at Hedge Fund Millennium Management, where he conducted fundamental research on the aerospace, defense, and transportation sectors. Prior to Millennium, he worked at River Source Investments, Manulife Investments, and Putnam Investments, where his research included the financial, technology, telecom, industrial, and consumer sectors. Over the years, Ryan has grown to believe that many of today's societal and economic issues are due to a broken monetary system, and that the innovation of Bitcoin is a solution to most of them. In this conversation, the three of us go both wide and deep across topics including a summation of the last hundred years of economic history, the risks of ignoring Bitcoin, how technologies grow exponentially on application layers, zoomed in dollar strengthening and zoomed out dollar devaluation, liposuction and the cure to fat butt disease, and the real bait of the episode, Ryan's jaw-dropping Bitcoin price prediction. We highly encourage you to follow Ryan on Twitter, at Ryan underscore Deedy. That's at R-Y-A-N underscore D-E-E-D-Y. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And if you are a regular listener and a fan of the show, you can legitimately assist our reach by leaving a review and or subscribing via your app of choice. We have some stellar sponsors of the BCB podcast, CoinKite and Ledin, and details about both these Bitcoin-focused companies are down in the show notes. Ledin is a very unique financial services company with a highly principled Bitcoin-forward perspective. Ledin is the first ever digital asset lending platform to undergo a formal proof of reserves attestation, where an independent public accountant regularly attests that the company is properly accounting for client assets. To put this plainly, this company mirrors and embraces the transparency, accountability, and auditability of the Bitcoin protocol and network itself. If you've listened to this show much at all, you certainly notice that we advise our listeners to be careful, manage risk, and never get over-leveraged. And that does include ensuring that any borrowing and lending decisions make sound mathematical sense based on your lifestyle and your specific situation. Where available in your jurisdiction, Ledin offers a menu of powerful financial services. Keep ownership of your Bitcoin and access dollar loans with Ledin Bitcoin back loans. Harness your Bitcoin holdings to buy a new property or finance the home you already own with the upcoming Ledin Bitcoin mortgage product. Save Bitcoin and USDC to have access to Ledin dollar loans and their trading service if available. You can look into all Ledin's well-architected menu of services at ledin.io. That's L-E-D-N And of course, BCB Podcast is also powered by CoinKite. Makers of the cold card, the open dime, the block clock, and a plethora of other Bitcoin pleb-worthy hardware and merchandise. 
If you're interested in having more peace of mind than a Buddhist monk with your Bitcoin secured behind military-grade Bitcoin security hardware fit for generational storage and protection, look no further. The two of us used this device long before this partnership, and we can attest it's fit for the Bitcoin cold storage newbie all the way up to sophisticated users. If you're someone that needs help with cold storage or doesn't even know what cold storage means, shoot us a DM. We're glad to steer you in the right direction. We also have cold card guides down in the show notes. You can access all CoinKite products, including the brand new cold card Mark IV at CoinKite.com, and be sure to use promo code BCB for 5% off cold card purchases. Alright, now prepare to chew on the meat of this bone as we pick the brain of Ryan Deedy. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Ryan, welcome on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. This is awkward because we just had some technical difficulties, so we cracked a joke in the beginning. We ca- can we crack it again, Josh? I maybe we'll reattempt. I want to hear it again. I was gonna full disclosure here. I had a I had a rough night last night. Um, I'm feeling good now, but man, it took a lot of water to get back from zero this morning. We had a black shift poker night last night, and it was a it was a rough affair. Um, people aren't proud of what they did last night. I can tell you that. <laughs> Only the utmost professionalism at our the department, utmost. Ryan. Ryan, how are you today? Thanks for giving us the time. I'm doing pretty well. Um, I kind of wish I was invited to that game last night. I haven't played poker in a while. It was a big Annie. It was $10 to get in. I don't know if you would have been able to uh, swing it, but yeah. No, yeah, I'm, I'm more of like a $5 guy. A $5 yeah. all-in tournament style. You do it more regularly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first names only, Josh. Who's the punching bag at these things? Like, who gets taken for all they're worth? Ooh, I think I'm actually on the top of that list. I'm a Are terrible really? poker player. I uh, I was playing. I mean, I I played maybe like six, seven, eight hands, and like I'm just I'm just not a long. I don't want to sit in this game. I just want to go hang out and bullshit. So I I kind of went all in and just punched out. You know. Is that alcohol related or intelligence related? Your ineptitude in these games? Uh, no, I was. That was like one beer in. I just, I'm just not into poker. Poker gambling is not my thing. Josh just not that intelligent. You know? Yeah, definitely not. I just yeah. can't count the cards. It really bothers me. Just got to punch out. When you don't have an advantage, you know, you just punch out. Yeah, I hear you. Cost of admission. Ryan, tell us about your background. Introduce yourself to our audience. Ryan Didi, born and raised in Boston, Mass. Spent about my background from like a work perspective. I uh, spent the last 14 years working in the asset management industry in Boston uh, as an equity analyst. So, you know, just the way to think about it is in terms of the job, you have portfolio managers and then you have analysts. Each analyst is assigned a sector to research with the ultimate goal to determine which stocks within that sector the, the funds should buy. So I spent the, you know, the last 14 years in the industry, um, saw a lot of interesting things. Um, I entered the industry in 2008, not the best timing. You know, six months later, I was living through the global financial crisis and proceeded to lose my job at the end of the year. Our whole fund shut down. Ouch. Fortunately, it was just a couple months later, I, I joined another firm um, Putnam Investments, also based out of Boston, stayed there for eight years. And that's where 
more or less, I learned everything um, in terms of the job. So first spent the first few years was on the U.S. team, um, but then moved over to the international team uh, for the, the last five years. Very interesting experience there. Spent half my time living in Boston and the other 50% of my time living in, in Singapore. I was covering a lot of obviously international companies, but a lot of companies based in Asia. So, you know, made sense to, to live over there. So I was there until the end of 2016, made the move to manual life asset management, also based in Boston in 2017. Um, was also on a global team, similar job, but was covering more sectors, but again, similarly, uh, from a geographical perspective, looking at companies all over the world. I was there for about three years. And then my most recent job was uh, I joined Millennium, which is a hedge fund based out of New York at the beginning of 2020. And I was there for about a year and a half up until the end of last year when I resigned to spend more time in Bitcoin. What, what was it that fell over to knock you into Bitcoin? Like how, what year roughly did you get in? And what was the first mover to push you into the space? I, the real catalyst was, you know, I had heard about it as everyone had at one point in their life, you know, prior to 2017. Um, I, we'd all read about the Winklevoss twins, you know, putting their Facebook proceeds into Bitcoin. It all sounded crazy to me. Geniuses. And, and <laughs> geniuses in hindsight. Yeah, it turns out. And I guess given my background, I mean, being in asset management, looking up to like the Warren Buffetts, I'm a value investor, looking up to Warren Buffetts. Hearing, you know, everything that there's no value here, et cetera, I just more or less ignored it. Um, but then my wife went to business school and she went to MIT in Boston. And you know, I didn't go to business school, but when I think about business school, you go to business school to, you know, meet a lot of people, make a lot of connections, really, and you really just want to dive into the like the business school bubble to maximize your experience. So with that in mind, I suggested that we move to MIT. And, and MIT is three quarters of a mile from, from where we were living in Boston, but I just thought it made the most sense to live on campus. So we moved over to MIT. We shared a parking lot with the business school. It was really funny. We were, <laughs> we were in uh, graduate housing. We were probably the only ones there living there from Massachusetts. Everyone else was, you know, families or international students uh but at the end of the day it was like it was the, it was the right move because she was able to just always be involved in like in the community but you know right when i got there it was all about bitcoin it was all about crypto blockchain you just couldn't ignore it yeah. so it, it, and it, everyone seemed to be working on uh, a blockchain related project or if they weren't working on one they desired to to work on one so it just made me think like number one like am i something am i missing something here like these are obviously very smart people so it more or less just made me finally take the time and to look into it a little bit more and, and there were plenty of resources there that i could engage with if i had questions or just wanted to interact with others so it was at that point where i really started um doing my own research and and you know I had already had a really good understanding of the existing financial system and how it worked. And I knew there was, you know, it obviously wasn't a perfect system. And I, and I was able to see pretty early on the innovation that Bitcoin was and see where it could fit in. 
But at the same time, it was unclear in terms of like what that catalyst would be in order to actually get adoption of this. Mm. Because Bitcoin, it can be this perfect monetary asset, but if you don't have a network, you don't get the value out of it. So that's more or less where, where it kind of started. And then, you know, going on through, you know, that, that was mid-2017. So, I mean, I think I, we all saw the run-up in 17, the, the, the crash in 2018. That really helped people separate Bitcoin from the rest of everything else. Sure did. And then, you know, just learning from that point forward, I was always a really big fan of Ray Dalio as well. So I was able to, um, you know, mesh those two and it all made a lot of sense to me. And then it finally, again, I, I didn't understand or I wasn't quite sure what that point would be where adoption, um, you know, that would catalyze adoption. And then March 2020 came. Seeing the reaction of the Fed and the U.S. government was it was very evident that they didn't know what they were doing. And, and based on all of my study of economic history, when you intervene in such a fashion, it will result in a significant devaluation of the U.S. dollar and, you know, more or less cause people to want to seek a better store of value. So, you know, that was the, the alarm for me. And it was at that point, soon thereafter, you know, I, I felt it was very important to spend a lot more time speaking with friends and family about this, about this asset. I mean, full disclosure, prior, you know, I've been investing my whole life, but I very rarely provided financial advice or guidance to family members or friends because there typically is never any upside to doing it. I was always there to answer questions, but never to proactively um, discuss this with someone. But when that happened um, and I saw the impact that the Fed and the government's decisions had on on friends and families, you know, savings, et cetera. I thought it was extremely important to be proactive and teach as many people as possible about the importance of this. So from from that point forward, I mean, I've to this day I've been spending between ten and twenty hours a week speaking with people. And as you know, it takes a long time. And I'm not here to tell anyone what this is. I'm just help I'm just here to help answer questions and guide people down the rabbit hole and point them in the right direction so they can they can fully understand it themselves. There is a precariousness though with sharing this. I mean, especially we're talking at a time when Bitcoin's way down and I'm sure all three of us have these people in our life that are newer to the space that you're kind of hand-holding through this process. And there is an element when we do have these cutoffs where you do realize that people need to lead themselves to water. You know, you can't push them. They have to do their own homework and their own research to be able to keep their hands around this thing in an environment like we're currently experiencing. Mm-hmm. I agree, though. My mouth has been largely shut through my life on my financial decisions with friends and family, but this asset is so pristine, it's nearly impossible to do that. And your conscience almost steps in and says, like, you need to share the significance of this. I, I thought it was like a moral obligation to do it. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I had people were very receptive because it was the first time that like myself or going into friends and family to talk about this. So they immediately paid attention. And, you know, it's don't trust verify. But there was like there wasn't an immediate dismissal because there was some element of trust in me personally 
that they would give us some time and, you know, read a couple of books before they dismiss it. So I always approach the conversation where you have to have an open mind. If you don't have an open mind, then it's just not worth your time. It's not worth either of our times. So if you're willing to have an open mind and, and I would present to them the amount of work that I've done and how important I think this is, then I think typically for the most part, they were very receptive. And then, um, and then, yeah, I was always available to answer questions. And there was a lot of engagement. There's always been a lot of engagement. So there has been zero, like, forcing this data, you know, pinning someone over and over again. Like, you have to, you have to um, look at this again. I mean, it's, it's not my role to tell them what, where they should put their money or what they should spend their time doing. Ryan, you're, you've created a piece. Uh, you call it Bitcoin due diligence. And for people listening, it's basically... Um, a synopsis for people that are being introduced to Bitcoin from an institutional vantage point. And Ryan's done an incredible job. If, if any of you, anyone listening wants to present this to somebody who's got that more institutional background, this is an incredible way to do it. Is this even available, Ryan, or is this top secret locked up Ooh, material? That's a good question. No, it's, um, I've shared elements of it. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's not top secret. Again, trying to help as much as I can. I thought right. we were special for a second, Josh. It's kind of a bummer. <laughs> Crap. Well, I mean, put it this way. It's, it's not many people have it. Um, because what I wanted to do is I wanted to write some articles about it to elaborate on some of the points. Because for, for some people, it's extremely helpful because they already have a, a good solid baseline. Yeah. But for other people, it may not make any sense. Right. So... We'll put it behind a paywall. We'll take 20%. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll send Ryan the other 80%. Um, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> this thing's a masterpiece though. This thing it is, is it's phenomenally masterful. well done. One of the, I think for me reading through this thing, and I want to talk about this a bit, Ryan, the thing that really strikes me as like the masterful way you've set this up is you kind of walked through each one of these economic paradigm shifts that we've been engaged in, in the last hundred years, starting with the great depression, world war II, the Nixon shock, the seventies inflation, the great financial crisis, and finally COVID and what we're seeing now. If we could maybe briefly, could you walk us through this this entire paradigm shift um, from the Great Depression till now, and like how these paradigms have changed, waxed and waned over time, and like how that affects your outlook as far as how you're going to deploy your money? I know it's a big question. That's a lot of stuff to go through. Yeah, it's a big question. I'll try to tackle it. Um, so I, I think just first off, this all comes back to. Um, the Fed. The Fed plays a, a big role in terms of how our economy, um, how our economy acts. So, if you look at the mandate of the Fed, the mandates the, the, the Fed's job is to use its policies to maximize employment and maintain stable prices. Now, in order to do this, um, they have these traditional tools, so like open market operations, buying and selling of treasuries, the discount rate, reserve requirement. The goal is to make sure the economy doesn't get too hot or too cold. Now, in my opinion, I think they've done a very poor job. I mean, over the last 100 years, we've had about 15 recessions. And then in, this, in, in, the, in the piece that I did, I wanted to look at those 15 recessions, then narrow down and zoom in on a subset of five of them, where things got so bad that the Fed had to throw out its old playbook and introduce an entirely new monetary policy framework. Now, across each of those five instances, there was a key similarity. And it was that debt levels had reached 
an unsustainable level, which was the catalyst for the Fed's change, change of course. You know, there's, there's no way to reduce the country's debt burden, so debt to GDP, where um, at this point there was no way to reduce the debt to GDP without resorting to something more extreme. So if you think about like leverage debt to GDP, how do you drive it lower? If GDP is no longer growing the denominator, then the only right. way to reduce it is by reducing the, the, the amount of debt. And then once you reduce the amount of debt, it gives you more wiggle room to you know, stimulate the economy, print money. Right. Of these five instances, you had 1933, 45, 71, 79, successful. 2008, they failed. Um, so just answering your question, just going back through each one of these. So um, Great Depression occurred from 1929 to, to 1939. You know, it, it followed the 1920s, the roaring 20s. The stock market was roaring. People felt good, taking out a lot of debt, borrowed money against their, their homes to buy stock. October um, 1929 comes around, stock market crashes. That had ripple effects across the system. There was a complete loss of confidence. There were bank runs, bank failures. GDP declined. As a result, debt to GDP increased significantly. So in that situation where the economy is stalled, the only thing you can resort to is by reducing the debt. So President Roosevelt at that time effectively abandoned the gold standard. He suspended the convertibility of uh, the dollar to gold. And then in addition to that, he issued Executive Order 6102. So that criminalized gold ownership and it forced all of the public to sell its holdings. Once um, they had accumulated all that gold, they subsequently devalued the US dollar by 40%. So if you think about 1933, $1 would buy you almost 5% of an ounce of gold. Fast forward a year, it'd only buy you 3% of an ounce of gold. So boom, you know, very quickly, the value of the dollar declined and the debt burden of the U.S. government was now lower. So at that point, it allowed them to introduce more stimulative policies that, you know, that, that we essentially saw over the next 10 years. You saw you know, the money supply increase double digits. So that was the first time they really uh, went into this you know, executing out of a, a completely different playbook. Um, the second time was you fast forward to the end of World War II. Um, so, you know, throughout the 40s, the, the U.S. government's uh, deficit was growing to fund the war, uh, saw a rapid growth in both the money supply and, and subsequent inflation. Fortunately for the U.S. in this situation, despite having all this debt, because they were in a better relative position versus other countries, when there was the um, gathering of the 44 nations up in Bretton Woods to establish the Bretton Woods monetary system, um, the U.S. dollar was made the global reserve currency. So the U.S. was more, able, more or less able to escape from those debt burdens um, that they built up through, throughout the war. But at the end of the day, the value of the U.S. dollar declined for anyone that was holding it. So that was number two. The, the third instance was um, in 1971. So there was a lot of economic stability between you know, the end of World War II and the 1960s. But throughout the 1960s, government spending started to really pick up again. Um, it was to fund 
There were a number of domestic social programs uh, funding the Vietnam War. And again, like previous times, you started to see the debt level of the U.S. grow, and it eventually reached um, unsustainable levels, where it was at a point where the uh, foreigners, because we were on the gold standard back then, the foreigners um, were demanding their gold. The French actually sent a battleship over to collect their gold, didn't they? They did. They went, they went to, uh, they're outside of New York and they were requesting their gold from Fort Knox. And that's what prompted Richard Nixon in August 1971 to close the gold window. Um, essentially, they had more credit um, issued on top of the gold that, that they could meet. So when they discontinued the U.S. dollar gold convertibility, again, it was a default on the promise. And by removing the dollar from its peg to gold, it resulted in another devaluation of the dollar. So when you have a devaluation of the dollar, that again reduces the debts of the U.S. So in all those three situations, you saw the debt burden of the U.S. decline um, to improve their debt to GDP. And it was all because of these extreme measures. So that leads you to the, the fourth instance. Um, it was in the 1970s. So, you know, this was after they went on a pure fiat monetary system with no gold backing. Because of that, you could introduce whatever stimulative policy you'd like. And you, and you quickly saw the, the, the debt burden grow, inflation rise. Um, and it was a little bit different this time. So you fast forward to the end of the decade and Paul Volcker was the chair of the Fed. And he chose to take a, uh, a different route. So instead of defaulting on the obligations, he actually changed the way they were going to manage monetary policy. And he, he, instead of, so more or less what happened was his change in policy resulted in the federal funds rate increasing from about 10% to 20%. So when that happens, it quickly washes out um, anyone in the system that has taken on too much risk. And that was the way they were able to flush the system of the excessive debt. But I mean, there was also pain in this process. You saw there were two subsequent um, uh, recessions in the following three years. So, and debt loads were low, especially relative today, extremely low. Yes. I mean, pretty much at every point in history relative today, they were, they were far lower. So just for perspective, um, when that happened, if you look at public debt um, to GDP, it was around 30%. Today, we currently stand at 120%. So it was, it was a situation where by increasing the interest rate that much, it wouldn't have been too much of a burden on the U.S. from the, the government right. where they'd still be able to you know, operate. Although it did pull a lot of liquidity out of the system, which resulted in the overall debt load declining. That brings us to the 2000s. So we all know in the 2000s, interest rates were very low. There were very easy uh, lending practices, the subprime loans, adjustable rate mortgages, eventually led to a housing bubble. Um, and, and the Fed tried to use its normal tools, but when it started increasing rates, because you know, housing was the core of this growth. When they started increasing rates, you started to see home prices decline. And that triggered a, uh, a financial and liquidity crisis. So in order to increase the liquidity in the system, this is where the Fed first introduced quantitative easing. It was purely to increase the liquidity within the system with the hope that it would also drive you know, economic growth 
So over time, the overall debt burden, you know, debt to GDP would go down. So November 2018 comes around, they pump $1.4 trillion into the banks over the following 18 months. They buy up, uh, most of it at that time was the mortgage-backed securities, and there was a bit of uh, U.S. Treasuries as well. Stabilized the the banking system for a little while, but the debt burden continued to increase. So economy really wasn't budging. So you fast forward another six months, they had to step in again. They pumped another $600 billion into the market. Nothing happened. Debt burden continues to grow. Mm -hmm. Fast forward another year, economy remains weak, pumped another $1.7 trillion into the market. Nothing happens. Debts continue to grow. Right. No, nothing. When I say nothing happens, I'm talking about from the economy perspective. Right. GDP wise. This whole time, like the stock market is pumping. Right. So just a uh, just a quick question in there. So the idea from the Fed's perspective is like we inject this money. We're hoping against hope that the GDP number is going to move and increase at least in parity. That way we don't see, you know, any ill effects from this. That's at least the position that they're taking. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. From the economy's perspective, though, all of this increased liquidity into the market was not having the intended consequence. So if you remember, they often talked about we still haven't reached the 2% inflation that we were um, trying to achieve. So that allowed them to justify pumping more money into the system. The economy started to somewhat improve 2015, and then they stopped. They stopped for a while. And then you fast forward... I'm going to get the month wrong. Um, I think it was early 2018, and they started pulling yeah. back, removing stimulus from, from the economy. But then you fast forward a year and a half later, and September 2019 comes around, and liquidity just dries up. So you see the repo rate spike, and they have to enter in again, pump another it's like just over a half a trillion dollars into the into the system, pretty much reversing everything that they had previously taken out mm-hmm. in order to, you know, maintain the stable or to stabilize the market. So throughout that whole period of time, you fast forward, and this is all before COVID, um, every bit of quantitative easing that they had or any new dollars they put into the system only resulted in a worsening, you know, debt situation. We had talked about like 1979, the debt to GDP was 30% when Volcker increased interest rates. Entering into the first time they did QE, that ratio went from 30 to about 70. And then you fast forward to COVID, and you know it, it, it was even it was even higher. So that brings us to COVID, which was you know six months after they had just pumped in another half a trillion dollars into the into the economy. Now, we all know what happened with COVID. They, they completely shut down the economy. And then they put in, you know, over the course of the next year and a half, they added another four and a half trillion dollars. So, I mean, they didn't think that this was going to cause any inflation because it didn't happen in QE1, QE2, QE3. But when you force everyone to stay home, then give them a bunch of money. So supply of everything goes down, demand for everything stays the same. Like yeah. that should result in higher prices. Um, 
which is what happened. And you know that kind of more or less leads us to where we are now. So now we are sitting at a debt to GDP of close to 120%. We're, all, we're seeing inflation and, um, and there's a lot, there's very little that the Federal Reserve can currently do, or I guess they're in a predicament. It's crash a the economy, I guess. That's what they're gonna do. <laughs> it's crazy. As I hear you talk through this arc, Ryan, what it makes me think about is what makes 08 and today different than the previous installments? And although we never returned to truly hard money when you trend 33 post-World War II, there was some semblance of an attempt to turn back to hard money in some way, shape, or form. Post-71, there's really nothing at the base layer now. You think about what Volcker did. He actually did face the music. He did. If you think about how he managed the situation. In 08, we didn't face the music because we don't have to, right? Which goes back to the architecture of the system, which is fiat. But it's like, if you, if you had fat butt disease 150 years ago, there was only one cure. You had to stop eating and start exercising. Now we have liposuction. You can kind of kick the can down the road, change no habits, and, and at least outwardly thwart your fat butt disease. Yeah. Uh, our move off the gold standard is basically monetary liposuction, Josh, and it's hey, not a permanent solution. Just to interject here for a second, or you could do a lap band, and Dan and I had a chief <laughs> like six years ago that got a lap band. He ate his way through a lap band and continued to grow. Like, impressive stuff. The lap band didn't even work for this guy. He QE'd his way right through a lap band and just printed himself another 40 pounds. Jeez. Ryan, do you kind of agree with the way I characterize that, though? Like, it, it, we can keep kicking the can down the road because of this new flimsy architecture. Yes, you can, but I think there's a point. There, it's to a point. Right. And, and I think the... I think there, there's a reason why we got to where we are right now. I think there's been just a general misunderstanding from the Federal Reserve's perspective. And I think this has to come down to how you think about economics in general and whether you should be intervening or not. But, and this is where it really dawned on me, um, when 2008 happened and they had to pump money into the system, that was a liquidity crisis within the, the banking sector. Mm -hmm. Right. So... So more or less what they did was, you know, you have this, if you look at your liquid assets of a bank, you may keep some of that in cash, you may keep some of that in treasuries. And, and then, and I think about like those two combined is total liquidity. When they first implemented QE, all they were doing was injecting cash into the banks and exchanging those for treasuries. So now these banks have a ton of cash, which is, it was a liquidity issue. Mm -hmm. um, so that was like a lesson learned and, and you had new regulations that went into place where all the banks had to have, you know, higher capital ratios. And so you didn't have to worry about these liquidity issues. So you fast forward to 20, I mean, you fast forward to 2020 and the banks have zero liquidity issues. Right. Like, so for context, um, that, you know, I'd said before roughly 15% of their assets were in liquid assets. I mean, going into March 2020, that had increased to 30%. Totally different. Totally, totally different. different totally yeah. different. So, so I guess the point is the first time the money went directly into the banks, it didn't go to the consumer. Far less inflationary. Right. You're not going to see in consumer prices. Right. Right. Whereas this time, the money went right to the consumer. 
I think so many people were very con confused about this because I do remember well, I paid some attention to financial markets back in 2008 and nine. Everybody thought after the injection of liquidity back then that this was going to be inflationary. A lot of at least a good subset of people did. And then when it didn't happen, everyone was kind of like scratching their head, like because I don't think most people quite understood the mechanics of how QE actually worked. I, to be honest, I think I barely grasp it now, but basically the money never really entered the system. It just sat in the banks, right? But now this right. is completely different. They literally helicopter money to directly to consumers who then went straight to the store and bought a Peloton that they don't use anymore. Josh, that's, you know, inflationary, obviously. <laughs> no, I sold it. The, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Ryan, I love, I, this is such an important distinction for our listeners. QE1 mm -hmm. and QE4, totally different. Right. right. But the point I'm trying to make, though, is that everybody that saw that happen in 2010 is thinking now, or at least a couple of years ago, going, well, last time this wasn't inflationary. So why would it be inflationary mm. now? But the misconception is just, just misunderstanding of how this money was injected. And obviously, that makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. We're seeing it now. Yeah, this is a huge deal. You have to trend which way this is going. So as you just said, Ryan, QE1 is basically a bank recapitalization exercise. Yep. But QE4 is smelling and looking a lot like debt monetization, right? Exactly. They're very, very different mechanically. Walk us through that dynamic of QE4 that we just saw through COVID and then you, I'm assuming you see that trend continuing. Explore yes. that dynamic. Yeah. So maybe just going back just to um, the way to hopefully like quantify the impact, or not quantify the impact, but point to some proof is if you look at, you know, between 1980 and 2020, if you look at the M2 money supply, it grew on average of 6%. All right. And it, and it more or less, the range was as low as 0% to low teens. And that's, that's consistent through 08, 09. So, I mean, M2 is the way it's, it's, it's more or less the money that's out in the, in the broader system, right? It's mm -hmm. including people's deposits, savings account, checking accounts, et cetera. Currency and circulation. So you didn't see a huge increase during that period of time. Meanwhile, if you fast forward to QE4, we have seen over the last two years, we've seen a 43% increase in the M2 money supply. Now, that, that's cumulative. So if you were to look at like right now versus March 2020, but if you just look on a year over year basis, because that's what I was making the previous comparison to where I was averaging 6% over time, on a year over year basis, at one point last year, it was up 28%, yeah. right? So that's money actually floating around in the system. Um, right. so fast forwarding to where we are now, um, it's, it's a really interesting environment because if you want to maintain the economy, an economy that is, if you think about what the Fed has been doing, they've constantly been providing people dollars to spend. I mean, if you give me a hundred dollars every single year, I'll spend it. And I'll go into GDP. If you want to give me a hundred now, 110 next year, 120 the next year, I'll keep on spending. It will grow our economy, Right. Right now, they're pulling back. So those checks, the amount of money in the system is getting pulled back at the margin. The issue is, is by doing this, it also has, an, and by increasing rates, it also has an impact on the stock market. It has an impact on broader asset prices. So all of a sudden, you know, my net worth was $100 yesterday. It's $80 today. I feel a lot worse off, so I want to save a little bit more. 
I don't want to go out and spend. I don't want to buy the wife dinner, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, that has a negative impact on, on potential GDP, right? And if you want to, if you need to grow GDP, you need to grow GDP above the rate that debt grows. Mm. Yep. And now you're in an interesting predicament because the government, over the last 50 years, the government, you know, we, we've always been, always had a fiscal deficit. So in the last 50 years, I think we've made money, we've profited, been in a surplus for like five years. Okay, something very small. And because of that, you have to borrow the difference. Right? Like if I spend $100 every single year and my, and my income is 50 bucks, then I just have to keep on borrowing that incremental $50 until someone will stop lending me money. So that's what the U.S. has had. To, that's what they've had to do over the last, you know, since we've, since 1971. Yeah. But there's always been a lender. There's always been a lender. The issue that they're facing right now is, if you look at prior to 20, prior to COVID, so if you look at from the beginning of um, like 20, 2002 until through 2019, and you look at all of the debt that was being issued by the U.S., in terms of who the buyers of that debt were. Roughly 85% of that was being bought by institutions or people in domestically or internationally. Now, over the last two years, that declined to about 40%. Yeah. So if, if, if foreigners and people domestically don't want to buy it, then who has to fill the, the void? That's where the Federal Reserve comes in and buys up the debt. So therefore, that is, and by doing that, think about it, you're giving the government more money, and then that money is being spent on the economy, so that's also inflationary. Right. That's not going into the banking system, that's going around the banking system, because it allows the government to continue to run a um, budget deficit. Before, before you go too much further, just a quick thing to interject. Um, so it seems to me like they, so obviously QE, or injecting money there, they're hoping to grow GDP. It seems like it's becoming less and less sensitive with mat- with you know the increasing amount of money. So their their upper bound is less sensitive to the money injection, and their lower bound when they withdraw seems to be more sensitive. So this is becoming a more unstable system mm. in just in perpetuity, which I think is what we're, the point of this talk. But just to just to drill that down and to, so people understand it. You're getting less sensitivity to the upside and much more sensitivity to the downside when the liquidity is withdrawn. It's a big problem for them. The other thing you you mentioned, uh, I think you said forty percent of the treasuries are being bought by you know institutions and all that. Now they have something to the to the tune of nine trillion dollars to roll over in the next few years, which is interesting considering how you know how do you how do you see that playing out? Taking it apart, um, so two different ways to think about it. You have the rolling of existing debt, and then the issuance of new debt on top of that. So nine trillion now. I mean, it's been growing at seven percent per year over the last three decades. So if your your debt burden is growing, let's just say at five percent to make the numbers easy, and your GDP is three percent, then the situation gets worse. Right, and your interest rates are going up. Right. And then if you're going to incre- increase interest rates as that debt rolls over, you're also going to be paying a, you're going to be paying a higher rate on a larger number. At the same time, it also comes at a time when there has been less demand for U.S. debt from every party, from 
foreigners and and those domestically. So if you look at the, again, just to kind of take a step back and look, put it in context, if you go back to 2014 and you look at all of the outstanding U.S. government debt, roughly 35% of that was held by foreigners. Numbers just came out yesterday, the day before, but that's now down to 25%. Damn, that's a huge change. So you've seen a huge shift. And, and there's just been a diversification um, away into other assets. So, for example, I mean, you're seeing this in the news just with earlier this year with Russia. I mean, if you look at Russia, for example, you know, they have their foreign, um, they have their, their reserve account. And if you go back to 2014, 3% of their reserves were in gold. Now it's 21%. Um, you've seen, you've seen, I mean, that's a more extreme example, but also very topical given the times, but it's also consistent with a lot of other countries. For the most part, um, the absolute dollar amount of debt held by foreigners has been little changed. So I think it's gone from, I think it's gone from about $6 trillion, you know, eight years ago to like seven now, like that's, that's nothing. So again, who's going to fill that void? Either people domestically or who are also showing less of a desire, or it's the Federal Reserve steps in, which is what's been happening. Yeah. Our pension fund's going to belly up to that trough. Yeah. So we've covered some of these topics already. In your piece, you, you highlight sort of this triple threat of macro fuckery right now, which is you've got highest ever debt over GDP with we just covered fewer consumers of the debt more than likely lowest ever or close to lowest ever fed funds rate at least when you compare the cycles as they trend down nearing highest ever inflation and the last time inflation numbers were remotely close to this the debt environment was totally dissimilar yep this is not a drill this is very different than previous situations what's your take on that triple threat of macro fuckery and then what are you like as they as they engage in this process of tightening and tapering, I mean, they're supposed to start June 1st here, unwinding the balance sheet to some extent. Where are we? How do you see this going the next couple of years as they try to ping pong against these two walls and handle many, many fires at once? Very tough question. Um, I wish I knew the answer. Uh, my, my take on it has been that, I mean... I guess the conclusion is I don't think there's a way out. Like I don't. If I was in the in, in if I was Powell in that seat, I don't think there is a viable solution to either taper and you know pull back the amount of liquidity. So you have a soft you have a soft landing and then Gosh. you accelerate or a softish landing. I mean, I never <laughs> maybe, want to have a softish landing. For maybe the we've got it all wrong. I don't know if you guys saw they've been putting fences up around the New York Fed. Uh, maybe they're putting suicide nets around it too. Make the landing softish. <laughs> So I mean, I mean, it's really it's really concerning. I don't think I don't think that there's a way out. I think what's going to happen is is they're going to they know that if they continue to support the economy, you're going to see a continuation of what we've seen over the last decade. You'll see inflation rise. You'll see asset prices go straight into the straight um, up into the right. And again, it's it's just kicking the can down the road. At some point, the value of the dollar depreciates to the point where, like, the prices right now that you're seeing, I don't think are real. You can view everything through two different lenses. One is that, like, houses are going up in value, mm -hmm. or 
the value of your dollar to buy those houses. It's going down. It's going down. That's yeah. the way I view it. And that's Same. purely because, you know, like it makes sense when you think about like the money supply, the amount of money that's chasing goods. It's also kind of interesting. You watch the DXY right now going up and up and up while at the same time we're watching prices of fuel go up and up. And like it, it's kind of counterintuitive. It doesn't make a lot of sense unless you understand that the DXY is kind of a measure of other currencies also devaluating. And we're watching the dollar devaluate against real goods in real time while appreciate against financial assets. It's kind yeah. of a strange situation. So I think um, I get this a lot, especially from people with my background, which I think is kind of crazy to me. Um, although I, it wasn't intuitive to me right away either. But first of all, DXY, it's, it's a basket of currencies. Like the euro, the yen, are the, I think are the two largest components. And because those two currencies have been depreciating versus the US dollar, that's what's driving the, the DXY higher. But regardless, um, the, the pushback I'll get sometimes is the dollar is fine, it's strong versus all these other currencies, or it's been stable versus all these currencies. The thing they don't realize is that the dollar is just like the best house in an awful neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They're all getting debased, all of them. So the US dollar is getting debased less than the other currencies. So your measuring stick of these other currencies shouldn't be another currency that's depreciating. You have to measure all assets, whether they be like, the dollar, houses, you need to measure them against something that isn't moving. And that's why I think historically, you know, gold has been used as a, um, you know, has been used as like the base layer of our monetary system because you can't just create more of it. You can't inflate it. And this is also where I think like Bitcoin comes in. So a lot of friends, you know, would say to me, you know, my house went up doubled over the last three years from 300 to 400, 500 to 600,000. And I would say, I don't know if your, I don't know if your house went up, like your house can go up for two reasons. If you bought a house for $300,000 in an awful neighborhood, and then you foresaw a ton of demand for that area, you had a flock of buyers, mm -hmm. you sold for $600,000, like that's supply demand, like good on you. That was a phenomenal investment. The other way, you, you, can, you can also see your asset go from $300,000 to $600,000 is the, you know, the amount of dollars in the system going up. So that currency being debased. So it takes you more, it takes you, you need to use more of a worse currency to buy right. the same house. And coincidentally, like you said, M2 was up 28% last year. Guess what? The average home price was up last year. Yeah, exactly. Damn near the same not, uh, percentage. Yep. Exactly. So I think that's really what's going on here. And I think it's important to put that into context. But, but I think it brings up another interesting point where if you think about like based on my own historical experience in asset management, it, it depends what kind of investing you're doing, but you may have like a mutual fund or you have a hedge fund. So you may have different strategies, but if, if you're a mutual fund and your performance, so there, there are more or less like two fees that you're charging, or there are two ways to compensate. Number one, you're paying an investment manager say a percent or less to manage your money. Okay, so that's how the firm is getting paid. But from the portfolio manager or the analyst, you're getting paid based on performance. And it's relative performance. So if the S&P 500 is up 10%, then you know, your stock picker, your goal is to go up 12%. And if you outperform the index, you, pay, you get paid. You get paid your bonus or whatever it is. 
Meanwhile, if the market is down 50% and you're down 45%, you get paid as well. You outperformed. Um, so it's, it's this relative perspective. Like I'd be upset because I lost 45% of my money. But it's all like this relative, you're always looking through a relative um, framework. And I think that's why a lot of these other concepts and thoughts aren't really thought about. Because you're saying like everything that we're investing in is denominated in these currencies. And if they're all devaluing, it's all relative. So it doesn't really matter. They offset. To transition this sum to the Bitcoin value proposition, which I'm uh, confident based on reading your work, you agree is very, very strong. We've sort of established that the macro backdrop is potentially ripe, which we can't hit on again. Like we're seeing the failure of the unit of account currently. And that's, that's another comment I guess we could make on the DXY that I think we would be remiss not to identify is like, where are people flocking during these credit crunches and liquidity crises, right? They're flocking to the unit of account, which is internationally the US dollar currently. That's going to continue to happen as money supply expands, as debasement and inflation run rampant. We're going to have boomerangs back the other way. That's just how these events happen. The DXY is going to have periods where it strengthens, the dollar strengthens. It's momentarily confusing. But if you zoom out on a 10-year timeline, it's really obvious, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So we've kind of established dollar is going to devalue, rock in a hard place. There's nowhere to go for money supply but up on the long term, which is a massive billboard for Bitcoin. Correct. The, the other part of your work, though, that really stands out to me is the significance of developments on the network itself. And for people that are newer to Bitcoin, like if you're a 2020, 2021 entrant, even for people like us going back to 2017, there were still elements that could be hard to visualize for Bitcoin's trajectory. Like how is the network going to scale? Where's the application layer going to come from? How are we going to onboard transaction volume? Your work, one of the parts that really stood out to me was how bullish you are on Lightning and kind of how you characterize the application layer of Bitcoin. Feel free to comment on anything I covered, but I really want to pick your brain some about the significance of the Lightning Network for a variety of different reasons and applications. Yeah, so um, maybe like before I get there specifically, I think it's really interesting since we were just talking about like stocks and things like that and other assets. One thing that I tried to present in that presentation was for the asset managers to understand the impact of what the Bitcoin network will have on existing business models and what the asset will have on existing valuations. Because mm. I think that will that'll tie nicely into the what's getting built on, on Bitcoin. Yep. Right so just to, again, to take a step back, there are two Bitcoins, which most people don't understand. Okay. You have a Bitcoin with a big B, which is the monetary network. Mm -hmm. So the parallel would be like the Federal Reserve System. Then Bitcoin with a little B, which is what you see on TV, BTC. That's the currency that runs on top of the monetary network. So that's like the US dollar on top of the Federal Reserve System. It's Bitcoin currency on top of the, the monetary network. And existing companies using the Bitcoin, incorporating the Bitcoin network into their existing businesses or the creation of new businesses is I think it's going to disrupt every single business model out there. So if you think about like as a stock investor, you care about two things. You care about the earnings, the future earnings of a company. And then you can either use like a valuation multiple or a discount rate to discount back those cash flows. The, the same thing. So if you first think about the 
the business itself, it's going to disrupt every single business, then the earnings are going to decline for every business that's out there. And then because those are lower earnings, and they may be more volatile earnings, the amount that you're willing to pay, the valuation that you're willing to ascribe to that set of earnings, or that you know, series of cash flows, is also going to be lower. So the impact that Bitcoin, the network, has on the network itself, has on the existing business models and the valuations of other asset classes is tremendous. On top of that, you think about Bitcoin, the currency, it is by definition, in my opinion, the best form of money that there has ever existed. And as a result of that, what I was, you know, other asset classes that I was using for a store of value, now I have a, a, a better alternative to transfer some of that money. So now you have, you know, not only a lower valuation on these companies because of the business models changing, but then you also just have this flow of capital that's leaving assets that were literally just being used for their store of value qualities, which is like stocks over the last few years, in my opinion, goes into a new asset class. So I think that's extremely important because even if you think Bitcoin is like a scam and it's magic internet money, then you should at least understand the potential downside to your existing business. I think that's a huge point too. And it's a good thing for people in general, because when people are speculating or trying to store value in say commodities, it makes your, you know, fuel for your, you know, put in your car much more expensive for an unnecessary reason. Um, if you're storing your value in a monetary asset like Bitcoin, you're not pumping the price of all these commodities that we all need and, you know, punishing the poorest among us because they simply can't afford these things. Yeah. What you've described is totally different than how most of these individuals would be thinking through risk. When you yeah. say risk in Bitcoin, the immediate thought is, oh, the risk that Bitcoin's buying power is going down. What you're suggesting is that as a superior monetary network, as the best form of money our species has ever had, this has the potential to call the bluff on and siphon out value from a host of other asset classes. And this is some of the game theory of the hedge position. Because as people recognize this potential reality, they're going to be like, eh, just in case that were to happen, I need a little bit. And then the snowball rolls downhill. But that's a very, when we, we've used risk in two very dissimilar ways, both of which need to be considered for asset managers. Couldn't agree more. Well said. Ryan, could you, I'm just curious because you said um, as this transition happens, a lot of companies um, are going to have lower earnings. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm not following just because I, I totally understand like say Visa, MasterCard, those are some obvious ones that are just going to get pummeled by this. But when you're talking about some regular like insurance company or, you know, something like Warren Buffett's holdings, some, why, would, uh, why would their earnings be diminished because of a change in numeraire or what they're using as uh, a measuring stick? Yeah, I mean, so I always really liked Warren Buffett, but um, I've chosen not to really pay attention to him on any of his thoughts on Bitcoin. I think it's... Um, <laughs> Don't blame you. I mean, one thing that's worth mentioning about um, Warren specifically, I think it's like 20, just under 25% of his holdings at Berkshire Hathaway that are equity holdings consist of like banks, credit cards. Yep. So you're talking like Alley Financial, um, Citibank. Bank of, Bank of New York Mellon, Bank of America, MasterCard, Visa, right? So he is not incentivized to talk up Bitcoin. Not one bit. Right? So, so, I mean, if you think about, I think that the simplest example that people have used, um, and then I also, I also used, 
is, I mean, if you think about the transfer of payments to anyone, anywhere, that is almost in every single business and there are fees taken along the way. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, you know, I, I go to Walmart, I spend a hundred dollars because of credit card fees, Walmart receives 97 bucks. Now there, there are a few other parties between us. There is the bank issuer of the credit card. There's the merchant acquirer, which deals with the Walmart. Then there's the, the network provider. So like the Visa, MasterCard, they all take their cut. So, I mean, starting in just, I don't know, sometime this year with Strike's partnership, you know, with NCR, you know, I was at Whole Foods the other day. I was at, Whole, at Walmart the other day. NCR is right there in the glass. If they want, they'll have the capabilities for me, instead of, you know, scanning my Visa, MasterCard, or pay with Lightning. And I can pay with Lightning and they get the full $100. So, so I guess, so a lot of people say like, well, they're not going to go right to Lightning because Visa and MasterCard will, will, will do something to try to, you know, stay relevant. Which I agree with. Like, we're not going to go to a Bitcoin standard overnight. Okay, I mean, this isn't even talking about Bitcoin. This is just talking about using the monetary network itself. Right. But now the POS has a competitor. And if the credit card companies want to stay relevant, then they're going to have to offer more attractive pricing to Walmart or all of the other merchants that they're using. So maybe they, they, they churn their margin a little bit. So... So Walmart and any other retailer can make a little bit more money. So you start seeing like the margin compression across all of these businesses. So just to make like, again, to zoom out and take, take an extreme view. Like I said, there's three different parties in here, but just assume that's like one company. Okay. Yeah. If, if I was the Walmart, for example, and my revenue is $100 and I'm making $10 in profit, all of a sudden there's $3 of opportunity here. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of a sudden, if I could take it to extreme, just so you can f- fully understand that, you know, put this in a little uh, in a bucket. If I can save three dollars of every hundred. My profit can go from ten dollars to thirteen dollars. Right. My margins go from 10 percent to 13 percent. but My profitability goes up by 30 percent in absolute dollar terms. So the, the, point, the reason why I bring this up is because. If Walmart could increase their profitability by 30% across the board for any like in-store sales or even sales that are getting done on the internet, yeah. then that is a huge profit pool that they can go after. And that is yeah. similar, similar for every single business out there, whether it be Starbucks, I mean, you name it. And, and they're all in El Salvador right now, like actually deploying this. So like the companies know how to do it. So it's only a matter of time. And you think about them right now getting squeezed by inflation. And there's this low hanging fruit, you know, 3% right there. And that's one way you can go back to the consumer. And essentially you're, you're taking that, um, instead of passing that higher cost onto the consumer because of inflation, you can make those intermediaries take that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So it, it squeezes them versus anyone else. So it's in the consumer's best interest and it's in Walmart's best interest. And, you know, they're the ones that are truly aligned in this whole, in this whole dynamic. We've been talking about this dynamic quite a bit on this show recently, the network implications. I don't think it's setting in for a lot of people that the tech is ready. It's all about users, right? The tech tech is ready or close to ready. And yeah. it's only a matter of time for consumers and merchants to realize that it's a win-win. 
which does get us back to the significance of lightning. And it's one of my favorite parts of your piece, which is as layers are built on top of technologies, this is when they go exponential. So we know what Bitcoin is at the base layer. If you've been in for any period of time, you understand it's immutable, censorship resistant, monetary policy, right? It's basically the new global Fed that nobody can alter the rules with, right? We, we understand that. But as technologies are built on top of it, and as the layers grow and the incentives align for users to onboard, this is when we really get up and to the right on this adoption S-curve. Explore that for us, how that parallels other technologies that have gone exponential. I know you talked about the internet, electricity, stuff like that. Yeah. So I remember I watched a, uh, a video of Jeff Bezos. It was probably, I don't know what year it was, 2000s, 1990s. I know exactly the one you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. So I watched that and that's where I kind of like thought to put this together. You know, and more or less, it makes the case for, you know, number one, you can't see without a base technology, you don't know anything else that's going to be built on top of it. So for example, electricity was first laid out and it's obviously very difficult to lay out like electricity. You know, you're digging and you're going all over the country. So it takes a while. It takes a while for there to be adoption. Now, once that's laid out, there are two things that happen. Number one, people think of ideas to build on top of it. So like the air conditioner, the refrigerator. And because you already have that infrastructure in place, the adoption of that new technology is faster. You already have the line into your house, your, your, your lights are on. Now I need someone to just put in an outlet, splice into the line or whatever they do, mm-hmm. so you can plug in the refrigerator. So what you typically see as you have these new technologies that, get, that build on another one, the growth of that technology increases, that subsequent technology increases. Um, so that, that's like the, that's, I think that's more or less what Bezos was talking about in that video. So if you think about, and this is where it kind of comes to Bitcoin, you think about like the landline. Landline was similar, similar with electricity. It takes a long time to put a landline out. Once the landline's out, you, know, there's, you, can, you can run the internet on that, and you see growth in the internet outpace the growth of that initial landline. You can always make upgrades to the landline as well, but you see, again, similar growth on, or, ex, or increasing growth on top. And then now you have the internet, and you think about other things that were built on the internet. So you think about like apps, you think about social media. Like all of a sudden you see these rapid growth rates. We already know how to use the internet. Now it's just an application on top. Mm-hmm. So if you look back over time, this has just been the consistent trend. And if you look at Bitcoin as the monetary layer of the internet, but we've already, we've already passed like that social network phase, you're building on top of the internet or Bitcoin is building on top of like the internet and the network piece. And you're seeing the fastest growth we've seen of any of these technologies so far. Um, so if you look at existing S-curve adoptions and the math I more or less did was I took like the average S-curve and just made some you know, more or less conservative assumptions. And well, that, what that will lead you to conclude is that by 2029, the adoption or, and this is all based on U.S. statistics, like based on the penetration, how many people in the U.S. own Bitcoin. By 2029, either like 80 or 85%, and I'll have the exact figure, will own Bitcoin just based on historical adoption trends. And that is where 
um, it gets really exciting because if everyone owns Bitcoin, then there will all, as more people own it, there will be a lot more use of the currency and the monetary network, which is going to drive more applications on top. And you know, I'm seeing that you know more or less firsthand here in Austin, and that's you know that's one of the main reasons why I came down here in the first place. So if you think about the existing system, I mean, you name the service, it's more or less being rebuilt, removing the existing rails and using the monetary network of Bitcoin to recreate a new business. And I think what you're going to see is over time, every business that you can think of, if they don't make their own transition, it'll just get rebuilt on the Bitcoin network and it will be a faster, cheaper and easier way to kind of do anything in life, just like the email was compared to, you know, sending a letter through the postal service. And I think it's just a matter of time. Once you experience it, that's when you'll really understand that it's not necessary. You don't need it, but it makes life a lot better. And that's what innovation does. What are some examples of these applications on top of Bitcoin? And I think most of the examples would be on top of Lightning, just for anyone that's confused. Like what sorts of things can be built on Bitcoin that might be, may have been hard to visualize, say, three, five years ago? So some of the most, um, the ones that are, are most talked about is, for example, Strike. So Strike is a company that uses the, the Bitcoin monetary network to uh, send money from peer to peer. So essentially what you can do is a person in the United States, if I could send money through Bank of America, through their Zelle network, or I could wire it, and it would get to the other person, maybe same day, maybe next day, depending upon what service you pick. Strike, what they do is you can use the same dollars. You never see Bitcoin in this experience. Use the same dollars. I send $5 to someone else. It immediately gets converted to Bitcoin. Once it's in Bitcoin, it can use the Bitcoin monetary network, shoots over the monetary network, like an email shoots over the internet, because Bitcoin is just a software that runs on the internet. And when it hits person X's bank account, converts right back to US dollars, it's in their account. So I sent $5, they got $5 instantaneously. They didn't understand that Bitcoin was being used under the hood. So that is um, the most simple way to think about it. But the other ways it's being used, there are other apps like SyncChat, and there are these other video streaming um, applications where if you think about the, the legacy ad model, you know, you are a product. You go on Facebook, you don't pay anything. You are a product. They're advertising to you. You go on YouTube, you watch whatever, 30 minutes of, of film, and you may see like 10 ads. So now there are other platforms that instead of you know, using monetizing the consumer's eyeballs and charging advertisers for those, they're just doing something peer-to-peer. So I open up a video through YouTube and I stream SaaS. I pay by minute or by second. So I may pay whatever, whatever I want, 10 SaaS per minute. So now all of a sudden you start thinking about like, I can support a, um, a podcaster. I can su- support a content creator going directly to them. And that has two implications. Number one, you cut out the middleman, the Facebook, the Google, whoever it may be. Um, but also you get, you get better content because it's not about just like 
keeping someone on a web page for a long period of time. If you can stream and you only pay mm-hmm. for the, you know, the seconds that you're willing to stream for because the content's good, then the content creator is also going to be incentivized to create better content and more fuller content. Um, yeah. And they're going to get better signal about what it is that people like as well. Exactly. Exactly. They can see when all of a sudden at some, some point in the video, the, you know, stats get cut off and, and they can use that as like their own AI, if you know, if you know what I mean, like their own analysis to figure out what their viewers actually want to see. Um, but I think, you know, that, that's just another model, but I think just, you know, if you look at almost like every industry, I think again, Bitcoin is going to have a role in it because it like, so for another example, would be like the, the oil and gas industry, right? You have, you have gas, you have oil and gas companies that right now are, you know, paying a fee to flare off natural gas. It's a cost to them. Now they can cap that, runs an engine, fuels Bitcoin miners, and they can profit off that. So some people would say that that is a, you know, a bad use of electricity. But at the end of the day, it just makes the energy company, it, it improves the profitability of the energy company or the producer. So now that they can expand their operations, because before they were capital constrained, and in a country where we have, you know, there are a lot of constraints on energy right now, that's something that we actually need. So that's just another example of where I think this is going to play a role. But, um, you know, I think just with increased transparency across money in general and less of, you know, a, a few people controlling the money, the way money is used and spent will be put to better use. Um, so you'll, you'll, there will be a proper allocation of capital, regardless of where it goes, versus the current misallocation of capital that we're currently seeing. Before we let you go here, we have at least we have to ask the crowd pleaser. Um, so you're saying network adoption, eighty five percent based on some of these metrics you're seeing, um, and I think you mentioned in your piece that one hundred forty trillion dollar market cap is maybe not outside the purview of sanity considering that it could eat up so much of the store of value from so many other markets from, you know, from housing, from real estate, from stocks, um, and on and on, maybe even art in the art world, people store tons of value. What do you, what do you speculate? <laughs> Just throw a wild number out there for us. What are you thinking by 2029, 20, 2030? If some of these things come to fruition, what would be a not insane number to speculate Bitcoin could be at? Jeez. Um, let me try to answer that a different way. I'll, I'll give you a sense of where I think it could go, the timing of which I am not sure. Okay. Fair enough. So the way I presented it here, as I said, yeah, it's $140 trillion market cap. And what I did was I looked at each of the existing asset classes. Okay. And, and, and note, like I was presenting this to people like asset managers that already thought I was crazy. Right. So I had to be, <laughs> I, I had to be a little bit conservative with my numbers. Yeah. Okay. If I were to properly, if, if I, you know, if this mimics how I store my personal assets, then obviously adoption would be a lot higher and the, the price would be higher. But just to um, look at this specifically, so I separated it between, you know, debt. So you have corporate bonds, government bonds, uh, other debt instruments, gold. You have the private. You also have public gold bullion. You have jewelry. You have industrial products. Or, and then you have money supply, offshore, offshore, et cetera. Now, what I tried to do was, like, very objectively, what percentage of that do I think is actually being used as purely a store of value asset? Not because I could just put 100% and say, you know, Bitcoin is infinity divided by 21 million, right? But, but I was trying to just, if I were to think about each one of these asset classes, 
what percentage of them do I think is actually being used for a store of value? So one, one good example is industrial products, gold. Like that's a utility. There's a utility value there, right? Like I don't think any of that is going to go into Bitcoin because I'm going to want my iPhone still or whatever, whatever else gold is going to be used for. Similarly, I think a, a low percentage of that, you know, jewelry, I think some people wear jewelry because they like it, gold jewelry. So maybe some of that goes over into Bitcoin. Um, but I try to just be very conservative with these numbers. And, you know, from a, the, the total market that I think, the total market of all assets, this is not including derivatives, under my estimation is $600 trillion. So $600 trillion of assets out there. And based on, you know, 15 different assumptions here, I came out with 23% of those assets are being used as a store of value. And that's how we get to $140 trillion, which equates to about $6.7 million per coin, per Bitcoin. Okay. And then that's also using 21 million Bitcoin. So again, be conservative. Then you can make the argument, well, you know, 4 million of those are lost. Okay. 4 million are lost, then then it's $8.2 million. But in order for the price to reflect that, you need like that to be consensus. Everyone needs to believe it. Just throwing it out there. Right. So the $6.7 million in today's purchasing power, by the way, purchasing power. That's a big, big deal to mention. If, if the Fed prints- $6 million in five years might not go too far. Yeah. And then, but I think if you were to take it to the extreme and said 100% of these assets went into Bitcoin, then the cap would be $29 trillion. If you assume that's using 21 million, 20 million Bitcoins. If you assume that 4 million are lost, that gets you to a max of 35 million. So the, I've heard 100 million out there. Like I can, if, if, the, if we keep printing for the next 100 years, then yes, it could be whatever you want. But under today's assumptions, today's purchasing power, that's where I think it could go over time. Um, so I'll, I'll take a guess. So my guess would be, I think my 140 trillion is conservative. Maybe it's 10, 11 trillion dollars. It would be my would be my my guess. I think it should be higher, but you know there are utility value in assets, and people are gonna own their house because they can do whatever they want to it versus rent it. But right. I'm fine with that. We're we're good with that number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Regardless of which way we spin this, sub 30k Bitcoin is extremely sexy. Yes, it is. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. It's uh, have a very you know long time perspective on this. Low time preference. DCA. Don't leverage yourself. People. Don't leverage yourself. Don't. The the U.S. dollar is pro- <laughs> it's programmed to devalue, and Bitcoin is programmed to appreciate in U.S. dollar terms. Right. Yep. Ryan, this was fantastic. A lot of fun, guys. Covered a lot. Truly enjoyed it. Appreciate your time. Give people a handoff. Yeah. Um, you can, if you want to contact me, you can find me on Twitter. It's Ryan underscore Didi, D-E-E-D-Y. And that's probably the best place. It was a lot of fun talking with you guys. Yeah, we enjoyed it. Keep churning out the good work, my friend. Will do. Take care, Ryan. Have a good one, guys. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. 
We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast.